everybody, and welcome to the January 8th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. We're back from our holiday hiatus, looking forward to a great year. Let's get a quick take on the loss felt across Colorado this week with the passing of renowned news columnist Penny Parker. Penny Calhoun from Westward, uh, you are a longtime friend of Penny's. When uh, the announcement came out the weekend, uh, uh, it was really... Uh, explosion on social media. People all throughout the community all have some sort of connection to Penny. Um, what's been some of the uh, thoughts you've heard so far? Well, uh, it was a sad start to the new year, for sure, when the news came out on Sunday night. One of the interesting things about Penny is she was a really old-school journalist. When she first moved here 20 years ago, there was no one more competitive. In fact, Lynn Bartles has a great story about how the Rocky Mountain News would always talk about, they called her Penny as first seen in the Denver Post, Parker, because she was always beating the news on the, story, the beat she covered. Then when she became a citywide columnist, she really kind of debuted social media. She really used social media in a way many people hadn't used it before. And now we're seeing it come back because even though the Post laid her off years ago, the amount of comment and people who care about her and want to follow her is incredible. So some of her friends are planning to have a public memorial where we'll read parts of her column, columns, the boat that skewered and uh, loved people. John Elway sent out a tweet about Penny Parker. She made a great impact on this community. So we'll be posting it on her memorial page when that is, probably later in the month. Well, we'll I know people will be looking very forward to uh, seeing that. Uh, Mike Krause, Nina Pence Institute, thank you for joining us. It, you know, beyond just uh, my personal feelings of really enjoying uh, Penny Parker and what she wrote, it reminded me kind of, I guess, our good old days of, of you know, a two-newspaper town and what that meant to have this kind of personality involved. What do you think? Absolutely. Well, first, you know, as, as I've been experiencing, the older and older I become, the younger and younger 62 sounds. So mm -hmm. it really seems a shame. Uh, to have lost Penny at, at, at that young age uh, when she should still have had uh, a lot of time to continue writing and, and doing whatever she would be doing post-journalism. Post but yes, it's, it's also part of the, there's an ongoing loss in, the Denver, in Denver uh, of institutional knowledge of back in the day when we were a two-newspaper town. So you've seen a lot of uh, people from the Rocky and then as the Post has shed employees, a lot of longtime voices who have moved on to other things or, or left the state or are no longer active in the industry. So you're, you're really seeing kind of, uh, uh, it's, uh, the, uh, there's an era diminishing that, that there's less and less knowledge of the fact that we used to be this two-paper town and that it was more of a cow town, certainly. And, there was, uh, and so uh, things change, but it's also a shame to lose that institutional kind of memory and knowledge. Absolutely. Eric Sonnen, political analyst, you know, with, with your background, including a variety of media uh, and uh, public relations consulting, you could really appreciate the kind of impact someone like Penny Parker had in Denver. Absolutely. Very sad. The phrase that comes to my mind is simply self-made. She made herself. She took a beat, which is an interesting beat, but she made it she made it a sensation. Uh, I can't tell you the number of lunches or coffees or, or beers I've had around over the years where someone would stop, uh, fortunately it wasn't me, but when someone would stop mid-conversation because I have to text Penny uh, <laughs> of something they just heard, of something they just witnessed. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me just go bigger real quickly than Penny. Uh, uh, very sad to lose her. 
But at the start of this year, we lost a number of other prominent personalities around this uh, this town and this state as well. I'm thinking of Bill Costa, who for a generation, probably the generation ahead of mine, defined what public relations was in Denver. Emma Salazar, mother of that whole clan, including Ken Salazar and John Salazar, and going way, way back, Vern Rapp. It's a name some people might not recognize, but he was a longtime manager of the Denver Bears that preceded mm -hmm. uh, the Rockies. So it's been a rough week for some Denver and Colorado institutions. Absolutely. Right now at the panel, Natasha Gardner, senior editor of 5280 Magazine. 5280 is uh, another one that's uh, a magazine that's really become a bastion of everything Colorado, but especially looking at kind of the social scene. So seeing some of the uh, work that Penny did, you could certainly appreciate what, what this made the scene here in Denver be like. Absolutely, and I think that's an important connection to make and what, what certainly for me when I moved to Colorado, Penny was immediately a must read column um, for many reasons, just you know places, people, things that were happening, but how they were connected. She was not only creating an encyclopedia of the city, but really defining how some of that came together and that mark isn't going to disappear with her passing. And fortunately it was something I was able to experience firsthand, um, but she is part of a legacy of journalism in this city um, that certainly has set the bar and it's something that I aspire to, I hope other journalists in the city look at and, and, and see this is something that we have to continue um, no matter what that looks like. Colorado State Representative Rhonda Fields was among a select group of lawmakers on hand when President Obama announced several executive actions addressing gun control this week. Included in the White House plans are a rule addressing background checks, funding for new ATF agents, and a proposal investing $500 million to mental health care access. Patty, this, this made huge headlines throughout uh, the nation this week, and Representative Rhonda Fields, who plays a big role on that issue here in Colorado, also played on the national stage. What did you think? Well, it actually looked like Obama was playing off Colorado's playbook because he, what he came down with in the executive order was very much what Colorado has already done, although not going quite as far. She, of course, wasn't the only um, Coloradan in the audience. We had the people who were re the two legislators who were recalled there because for whatever reason, you know, whether it was because they didn't respond to their constituents or simply because they had pushed gun legislation, they lost their seats. I'm sorry to say that one other legislator wasn't there, Jerry Sonnenberg, who came up with the incredible analogy of equating Obama's tears to oiling an assault weapon that's going to kill six and seven-year-olds. We should not just have permits and licenses for guns. We should have them for legislators before they tweet. Are you kidding me to be that cynical about it? The suggestion that Obama, who has seen, overseen horror after horror. I mean, you can talk to John Hickenlooper about what it's like to preside over funeral services and have to talk about multiple murders by guns. Maybe these stopgap measures wouldn't have prevented that, but if they prevent any, good. It's nice at least to be able to see a, a safety mechanism on each on a Twitter feed for a legislator. I would definitely support that. Uh, Mike, these executive actions aren't new laws. I mean, there's different from the differences there, but when it comes to just a public point of view, it seems like it's almost a, a, a late Christmas gift for Republicans looking to fundraise 2016. Does it go beyond that for Republicans when you look at these issues? I think, I think it will be, it should be very good for fundraising for Second Amendment advocacy groups uh, and, and might be good for Republicans, but, but let's, let's back over. Well, first off, Representative Field was uh, clearly not a, like a political prop for this thing. She actually has a very compelling 
and personal backstory with regard to guns. Even though she is wrong on the policy end of it, she has a very uh, tragic story to tell. So she's an ideal figure for, for, for this kind of event. Uh, that said, uh, the, the Obama, uh, I think the real impact of what he did was uh, a masterful piece of political theater because all he had to do was suggest that he was going to take uh, a unilateral executive action on guns and he fired up his the, the gun control base and the progressive base, tied Republicans up in knots over how to respond to this, uh, fired up gunnies, maybe inadvertently, but that was just fallout from it. Uh, and, but at the end of the day, after all the sound and fury, he did remarkably little. I mean, some of these executive actions were merely suggestions. Some, like expanding personnel for... Uh, expanded personnel or are just to make sure that the existing background check laws are done in a timely and thorough manner, which is the least we should expect from our government in the first place. Uh, so what he really did was take over the news cycle for a week and everything else went off. ISIS, yeah, I mean, I heard a word about ISIS in a week. Uh, so it was a brilliant piece of theater that at the end of the day accomplishes very little uh, in terms of actual uh, new law or regulation for gun control. Eric, Mike raises a good point. I mean, it, it took a lot to knock Donald Trump off the headlines for a week, but it, it, this really uh, certainly did it. Do you think this will have impact on the election, whether it be Hillary Clinton or the Republican candidates or even uh, down-ticket races? Surely. I mean, guns are a dividing line issue between the two parties in this country, and both of them appeal very strongly to their respective bases. Um, I think Mike is right in the sense of this was much ado about not all that much. The substance of these executive orders was very, very modest. I struggle with this issue. On the one hand, I'm anything but a Second Amendment absolutist. Uh, whether it's the Colorado laws or the substance of these uh, executive orders, I have no problem with them on substance. I do think something that is missed in this dialogue is the notion of process. Uh, and there is an increasingly an ethic in this country on both sides of the political aisle that all ends justify all means. And we have seen out of this president, as well as previous presidents, but it's been intensified under this president, um, and particularly in this final months and years of his term, a proclivity to use executive orders where it, even in years past he said he couldn't do that because this was subject to congressional action. There is an increasing consolidation of power in this country in the executive and away from the legislature and no matter how dysfunctional Congress might be and no matter how much people might despise or dislike Congress, they still are the elected legislative branch of this government. So I think the net effect of all this is to increase polarization in this country, to decrease any sense or any hope of good faith or collaboration, and don't forget, lastly, that one day there's going to be a Republican sitting in the Oval Office, whether that's 12 months from now or four or five years from now or nine, ten years from now. The pendulum does swing in this country. And not only can that Republican, obviously, with the stroke of a pen, undo these executive orders, but he or she can use that same kind of consolidated executive power in ways that current fans of these executive orders will find uh, very frightening. Natasha, this did seem... Uh 
I felt a little bit about if, if that Obama understood that his legacy is now becoming uh, a, a bigger deal for him to do. He's the only have a few months left, and really the election's going to begin to really eat at all the attention. So there's only a few months left to do something, and this seemed like a, a big issue to do something about it. Does this speak to his legacy? Was there enough there to do that? I think the speech was entirely about his legacy. Um, and, and interestingly enough, too, in the speech, he referred to the Affordable Care Act as Obamacare as well. So two, two items related to his legacy came out in that speech. You know, talking about guns for me personally is so difficult. I mean, I basically grew up in ranch land, USA. Everyone had guns. Um, they used them, for the most part, overwhelmingly, responsibly. They use them to hunt. They use them to, to feed their family with that food. They go through gun safety. I mean, everyone in high school went through gun safety. That's just how it is. But that's the, the so I understand the, the right to bear arms and how important it is to protect that and how people are really fighting in this country to do that for good reasons. However, I think Obama's speech also raised a, a great awareness of the rights that we're losing as a result of this too. And so taking the step back to say, um, all right, what, what are we giving up in, in the opportunity of keeping this right and what does that mean for our future? And I think what was interesting to me, and, and we know Obama is a very good debater. He's a very good, very good at the art of argument at a time in our country and in individual conversations, we're not very good at it. Um, he brought back the subtlety. Instead of a sledgehammer, it was more like a foam mallet of, all right, folks, we're going to talk about this, and this is going to be part of my legacy, and we are going to continue to have conversations. But nothing that he said was really revolutionary or, or so new that, that people who weren't already going to get upset about it, they were going to get upset about it, but it raised some, some conversation points for the rest of us to perhaps have conversations with perhaps some of the people that I grew up with about how, how do we do this? How does this look in Denver, Colorado, and New York, and in Chicago, and in North Dakota? Governor John Hickenlooper is at odds with Republican State Senate President Bill Cadman over the complexities of the hospital provider fee battle. Cadman claims a memo from Legislative Legal Services affirms that the governor's proposal is unconstitutional. However, Hickenlooper refutes that the Attorney General's office has already commented that nothing in Tabor prohibits the proposal. Mike, the whole hospital provider fee thing is pretty complicated. I consider myself someone who at least keeps up with politics the best I can, and it confuses the heck out of me. So I don't want to get into the, too much of the details there. But when it comes to fighting, you get the Senate president on one side and the governor on one side. Once it's illegal, once it's not legal, um, how bitter is that fight going to get? It'll be interesting to see how bitter it gets to and whether or not there's something introduced to try and meet in the middle uh, to try and get around this. But let's just assume for a minute that, let's say for the sake of argument that it is, con it is constitutional. Uh, it is still a very cynical shell game uh, going on to try and uh, bust Tabor and to basically deny Tabor refunds to people moving forward uh, long term into the future. The hospital provider fee is really a tax. The federal government even calls this a tax when they approved Colorado's participation in this. Uh, it was disingenuously called a fee to get around having to have vo people vote on it. You, you are taxing sick people in the hospital and then not allowing them to see that tax on their bill to shift money to a, another account to bring in federal matching funds to now subsidize care for healthy people through our Medicare, Medicaid expansion and then sending the money back over to the hospital. So if anyone else was doing this, we would probably call it some kind of Ponzi scheme or they would be under some kind of criminal indictment for doing this in the private sector. Uh, so clearly this is a tax. Uh, and clearly uh, what they want to do is simply get around simply asking the voters, can we keep this money? Uh, 
do you approve of this? So this has all been one big end run around the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And I, and I applaud Senator Cabinet for standing firm because he, he's been under an immense amount of pressure by what we call the takings coalition, the people who want to take this money, move it out from under the table, table limitations uh, to spend on, uh, on things. Uh, I, I think that uh, the Democrats were wrong to pass this as a fee uh, years ago. Uh, it's clearly a tax, should have been put to a vote of the people uh, and should be repealed, frankly. Eric, as a political issue, is it more valuable for Governor Hickelooper to see this enacted and that he kind of wins this issue, or is it more valuable for him to lose on this one and for it to become kind of a martyred example of the, the problems with Tabor where he can fight a bigger battle? It's a good question, Dominic. There are a whole lot of moving parts here, and this is one substantial moving part, but it's not the only one. And the bigger ones are the Better Colorado campaign that is coming up to detaborize the state or at least to uh, basically do a permanent referendum C, uh, debruce the state through a permanent referendum C, which is going to be one of the battle royales in all likelihood uh, of this coming fall. I think John Hickenlooper really sees the hospital provider fee not as a political issue, but as a way to leverage $750 million or something to use for highways, to use for higher education, to use for X, Y, and Z without having to refund that to taxpayers. It has become a game of political gotcha between the Senate Republicans that run, they run that Senate by an 18 to 17 split, uh, and the governor and, and, and other Democrats. And without even opining on where the equities lie, although there was a clear opinion the other day from Legislative Legal Services that basically supported the Republican position here, the Republicans think they have a trump card here in political terms. And there is a lot of talk I'm hearing these days of the Republicans, probably they can't get it through the legislature as a referred measure, but maybe even as an initiated measure, to take this to the voters for clarification. And if they win, well, fine, then Tabor has been reinforced. And if they lose, that's fine, too. They at least have made the case and required the Democrats to adhere to their interpretation of Tabor. So this is one of many political games that is going to get played out over the coming four months of the legislative session. I can't tell you how it's going to, what the upshot of it's going to be. Natasha, Tabor's been a uh, point of contention for the legislature since it was passed way back in 92, so that's nothing new. But does this particular fight add anything new to the argument? Well, if anything, it's turning Tabor into like a, one of those words you can't say on television, like the old <laughs> Carlin sketch, right? <laughs> uh, we'll be on the show. And I, actually, I think that is the policy. I think that there's slowly, part of the PR agenda is to just take away um, people's trust and respect in what this is. And of course, I think we are going to see it on the ballot um, sooner rather than later. Uh, what I think is interesting about this, though, is that how quickly things change. When they first looked at putting this into place, the economic forecast, and Colorado was dismal. We were not going to be looking at the situation that we are today, which is great economic forecast. I mean, look, take a look outside in downtown Denver and look at the cranes in the sky. Things are completely different. And that's part of the reason why we have to constantly tinker with our system. Um, whether you like Tabor or not, that forces us to constantly tinker with our system and look at what our budget priorities are. I don't want to call it a crisis yet, because um, I think we use that word maybe too often, but the budgetary concerns that are happening in the state and what we have to pay for and what we will not be able to pay for is going to be a big topic at this table and up at the, at the Capitol as well this year. Patty, even if the program is legal, if the, that's, a, that's a full decision that does come out that way, it still has to go through the legislature to happen. Does Governor Hickelooper have the political capital to make that work? 
Well, he might. He's got to decide what political capital he wants to spend. Now, we have to remember, this wasn't his idea. This one dates back to Ritter. So it was a way, when the economy was going to hell, to just try to save, to capture some of the money that was coming in. You know, you have to think about Tabor and the city. Let me use this beautiful coffee cup. <laughs> so all the money that's coming into the state, you know, it's going into the coffee cup, and Tabor has a limit on how much can come in. The hospital provider fee is basically on top of that. So what they're hoping to do is just use the fee, have a little spigot and let it out and use it for the things that Colorado would really like to pay for right now, like roads, which they can't do under the current budget with the Tabor limitations. And they thought they had a deal, the Democrats and especially Hickenlooper, thought they had a deal with the Republicans that if the money went to transportation, went to fixing all those potholes, went to fixing those highways that no one's come up with a way to fix otherwise, then maybe the fee would pass. Um, we'll see if people are upset enough about the roads to make it work and push it through in this legislative session. But there are a lot of other sticky issues that Hickenlooper is going to have to use his political capital on, too. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Building a Better Colorado director, Reeves Brown, said the community meetings held in 2015 have shown considerable consensus on eliminating the budget caps of Tabor and making it more difficult to pass constitutional amendments. The organization seems to be close to announcing three ballot proposals for November's election. Eric, you know this uh, uh, issue pretty well. You know how difficult it is. Your quick take. Tough one for a quick take, but I'll do it. Two words heavy lift. This is going to be a very heavy lift to pass by the voters this November, but it seems that the establishment stars are aligned, including the governor, this effort led by Dan Ritchie uh, to make the effort. The public mood out there, witness Donald Trump, witness even Bernie Sanders on the left, is an angry public mood. It reminds me of the public mood somewhat back in 1992. What happened in 1992? Ross Perot was on the ballot as a mini version of Donald Trump and Tabor passed into law. It is going to be a tough year to repeal it or to, to substantially modify it. Natasha, what do you think? Are they lining themselves up for uh, a fight that they can win? I, I think it will be a very interesting battle, no matter what. I, I he hesitate to make any predictions about this because I think it's a wild ride in the next few months here. But if I had to make one prediction, my prediction will be that the ballot will be very, very big. I hope we have postage costs to cover this. <laughs> it is The mail-in ballot is going to be immense. So no matter whether they win or not, I, I don't think we know enough or yet to truly say. But um, there certainly will be a lot of issues, including these two. Packing, uh, Patty, does this make uh, fracking the, the lower tier battle on the upcoming election? I think it'll still make fracking the big money one, but I think the, the, what um, Building a Better Colorado really has an uphill battle on is making it harder to get, to get constitutional amendments on, because if the populace is upset about government, that's something they don't want to lose. Mike, does this go anywhere without bipartisan support? Well, no, I, and as we've seen a few Republicans sign on to it, uh, former Republicans, no legislators have signed on to this idea yet. Uh, building a better Colorado is actually a bit of a misnomer. It should really be called building a bigger Colorado government because what they originally said their plan was to look at some nuanced and subtle changes. Well, there's nothing nuanced or subtle about eliminating Tabor caps or changing the way citizens get to amend their own constitution. Those are significant issues. I think that this is the shows that, uh, in many ways, this has been kabuki theater to try and get uh, some public opinion around a, a preset outcome. And John Frank did an excellent piece in the Denver Post on this, where where Reeves Brown even acknowledged that this was kind of done in a bubble with no opposition, and they won't release their polling results or their methodology. 
Uh, so that gives, to, to me, that gives credence, and, and we're one of the organizations that, that, that looked at this and said this is the Destroy Tabor Committee. Uh, this is just a new iteration of an old uh, formula to try and chip away at Tabor. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I would like to say it's David, much as I love Mike. I wore my <laughs> gun, just my only gun, just for David, and he's not here. But instead, I am going to take, uh, take on the federal government, which suddenly sprang on the city of Lakewood, putting 1,000 to 1,500 refugees. And we're not talking Syrian refugees. We're talking about the refugees from a year and a half ago when we were all talking about it. The kids from Central America who are fleeing oppression, who are coming here, we still don't have a solution for them, and the best thing we can do is lock them up in Lakewood. There's got to be a better solution. Mike? President Obama, for his uh, unilateral and executive actions this week, as candidate Obama, he actually inferred that President Bush had taken too much power into the executive and had been making decisions that bypassed Congress and said that he would change that as president. Well, as president, he has embraced the idea uh, of imperial rule through executive action. Uh, an odd understanding of the actual structure of the American government for a guy who claims to be a constitutional law professor. Eric. The Colorado caucus system, we are about to embark. The Iowa caucuses and then the New Hampshire primary and everything are a month away. Colorado is at the epicenter of this presidential race in November, and we are nowhere to be found in terms of the Republican uh, nomination contest or the Democratic nomination contest, because we insist on holding on to this archaic, antiquated system that discourages participation. The Republicans have gone so far this year as not to even have a preference poll. We have made ourselves complete non-players in this nominating process on both sides of the aisle. Natasha. I'm going to switch to entertainment, although politics can be plenty entertaining, and join the hashtag Where's Ray um, from the Star Wars movie. She's the notable female character. She has been absent in some key promotional and merchandising efforts, including the Monopoly game, which makes no sense because she's a pivotal... She's not a Monopoly game? That's crazy. She's a pivotal character. I won't give away any spoilers. However, um, as a female person in a film, she's also a great model for our kids. So not to have that in that, that effort to market and promote the film is just really sad. And, I, and the idea of female action figures, I just want to point out, I would love to see a Molly Brown action figure. Just putting that into the universe. That would be point. awesome. <laughs> well, to do this part quickly, say something nice about somebody. Patty. Stock shows in town and breathing a sigh of relief this year because it's got a big boatload of money coming in. So everyone should be paying attention where that money's going. Mike. Senate President Bill Cadman, a guy who was under an enormous amount of pressure over the last couple months to sign on to this Tabor-busting shell game of a hospital provider fee, and he has stood firm. Uh, good for him. Eric. My wife Tracy has uh, two students here today with her from the Logan School, Andrew Poole and Leika Masudi. So a shout-out to Andrew and Leika, and I hope they're enjoying watching this production. You're here. Natasha. Last month, ProPublica published The Unbelievable Story of Rape. It is a fantastic piece of journalism, but also features a Colorado angle and some efforts by some local law enforcement who did incredible work. It's a good read. Fantastic. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. As always, remember to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and our web-exclusive segments on our Twitter feed. Also, don't miss the premiere of the last season of Downton Abbey, broadcasting next Monday night at 8 p.m. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.